If you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open up to Luke chapter one. We'll be in verses 26 through 38 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, those verses will be up on the screen behind me throughout the course of our time this morning. As you're turning there, I'll go ahead and inform you, speaking of the scriptures, that uh, if you uh, haven't received this information yet, this Wednesday evening from 7 to 8.30 p.m., we're going to be putting on a Bible study principles and practices workshop. Um, we're going to offer that through two platforms, so you can come into this space during that hour and a half time uh, and engage in person. Uh, we're also going to offer a digital live stream of that uh, obviously, you'll get more out of it by being here present, be able to interact a little bit more and ask your questions, but you're surely welcome to engage in either of those platforms. We put this on a couple of times throughout the years. It's been a while since we've done it, and so even if you've gone through it before and you, you wanna just go through it as a refresher, you're welcome to do so. We just ask that you register. Uh, you can go to the homepage of our website or to the Church Center app, and you can register for that event if you wanna be a part of that. Let us know how many people uh, will be coming into that space, whether it be digitally or uh, here in this auditorium, and we'll, we'll dive into the scriptures and, and get behind the curtain, so to speak, uh, into what it might look like to, to grow in our ability to sit with God's word and, and glean more from it. Let me, let me go ahead and pray for us this morning, and we'll jump in to this incredible story of Christmas as told in Luke's gospel account. Lord, as we're about to even see in the scriptures themselves, if God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, can inhabit a virgin womb, then surely we can inhabit this space this morning with a little bit more noise and a few more eyesores. I pray, Lord, that as Jesus was formed in the womb of Mary, that you would form us this morning in our time together in this space, Lord, that, that you would conform us to the image of the Son, that you would move and work to spiritually knit us together to, to more look like you as a result of our time in your word this morning. Would you, would you do that, that you might get the glory and, and that the joy might be ours? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, if you weren't around or if you were, last week uh, we, we entered into the season of Advent, a season celebrated by the church dating all the way back to the fourth century. We've been doing this, the church, for, for about 1,700 years, the Advent season. That word Advent derived from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming or arrival. It's a season that's essentially meant to focus our attention, our attention on the coming of Jesus into the world. The, the joyful celebration of his first coming, the hopeful anticipation of his second coming. There's a both and there, the two comings of Christ. This season, it's meant to awaken our hearts to the, to the beauty and wonder of who God is and all that he has done, is doing, and will do for us in Jesus Christ. As you would imagine, uh, we're gonna spend a, a great deal of time this Advent season diving into the incredible story of, of Jesus' birth, the story of a God so filled with love for his people that he would take on a bruisable body in order to sign the check for their ransom in his blood. We're gonna dive into that great story as told in the first couple chapters of Luke's gospel account, and then we're gonna continue right on into the narrative that follows going into the new year as we work our way in the months to come through the full story that Luke goes on to tell. A story that, going back to last week, I mentioned Luke writes that people might have certainty regarding the son of man who came to seek and save the lost. 
In the words of one commentator, Luke's gospel account is the gospel of knowing for sure. Like Luke composed this writing that we might know, that, that we might have certainty, a certainty not in, in, in ourselves, which can only ever leave us doubting in the end, but rather a sure knowledge of Jesus Christ and the hopes that's ours in him. If this were, if this were a Netflix series, right about now you'd hear the words previously on and it would catch you up to speed right on the transpiring events leading up to the present episode. In this case, going back to last week, the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah's receiving of a message in the temple from the angel Gabriel after 400 years of silence on God's part, a divine promise that, that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son, a, a living, breathing miracle set apart for God's work, a great revival, the calling of Israel to repentance in preparation to meet their God and the coming of his kingdom, a prophetic messenger, a second Elijah, the, the forerunner called to herald the coming of the Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord, to be given the name John, going back to last week's passage, a name meaning God has been gracious or God has shown favor a declaration not only of, of God's grace in, in making a barren womb fertile, but also of the grace and favor that the Lord will pour out upon his people through the ministry of John and the Messiah to follow. A promise that you may remember going back to last week leaves Zechariah dumbfounded in complete disbelief as he interprets God's word through the lens of his circumstances rather than interpreting his circumstances through the lens of God's word reminding us that, that even the most devout believers need not let their guard down when it comes to the temptation to question the word of the Lord. In this case, such questioning leading to an act of perfect fatherly discipline on God's part in cultivating a, a deeper faith in this elder son as Zechariah is made mute, unable to, to speak until the promise of a son is fulfilled while his wife Elizabeth, meanwhile, rejoices that the Lord has overcome her disgrace her reproach taken away after all those years of people looking down on her in her barrenness, questioning her godliness, assuming God's curse upon her. As we pick up this morning where we left off, we're told that Elizabeth has kept herself hidden in her pregnancy for, for roughly five months, living outside the spotlight of the, the community in which she finds herself. And we're told, picking up the story in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Right, Luke's gospel account, it's literarily brilliant. What he does is he, he opens up with a couple of birth announcements, two stories laid out side by side for comparison and contrast. The, the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord, followed by the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, Christ the Lord himself, so that you have two announcements, two pregnancies, two songs of praise. And yet the two stories couldn't be any more different, could they? The, the comparison itself meant to show the contrast for what it is. We now find ourselves six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy in the wake of the angel Gabriel's promise, the story now having shifted from Jerusalem, the city of God, to, to the small country town of Nazareth. 
If you read another of the gospel accounts, John's gospel account, you find out pretty quickly that Nazareth didn't have a great reputation. In fact, John tells us that having recently met Jesus himself, that Philip went to his friend Nathaniel to evangelize him, to invite him to come and meet the promised Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response was this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In the words of one commentator, Nazareth, a shoddy, corrupt, halfway stop between the port cities of Tyre and Sidon. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Ironically, the story of Christmas tells us that the answer to that question is only the greatest good the world has ever known, right? That it's in that shoddy little town that that the angel Gabriel makes his second stop delivering the message of the hope of Christmas to the least likely of people. A roughly 12 or 13 year old virgin girl by the name of Mary on the basis of the standard age of betrothal in first century Hebrew culture. A 12 or 13 year old girl. That in and of itself is mind boggling. When you think about the maturity level of the standard 12 or 13 year old in today's society, as we'll see over the the course of these next few weeks, Mary's humility and spiritual maturity was something to behold. Betrothed to, to a man by the name of Joseph, who was a descendant of King David, the first of several indications in Luke's gospel account that God's covenant promises to David are coming to fulfillment. In verse 28, we're told, and he, the angel, came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I mean, you can imagine Mary's surprise, right? The backdrop of, of this incredible scene, drastically different than Zechariah's angelic visitation. Right? Mary's not a priest. She doesn't live in the city of God, Jerusalem. She doesn't find herself standing in the temple of God. None of that in this story. No, she's a a relatively obscure, poor, uneducated, small town girl living in a shoddy city out out of which nothing good seemingly comes. And she encounters an angelic messenger of the Lord, a, a heavenly herald clothed in light. And it troubles her, as it probably trouble any of us leading her to to ponder the meaning of the angel's words, to to ponder the meaning of the angel's visit. What is this? If we ourselves ponder it long enough, we see something of the beauty of the gospel here, don't we? God showing us the, the humiliation that Jesus would have to suffer that lost sinners might be reconciled humbly entering into the, the misery of our hopeless situation in order to, to raise us up. I mean, what, what better way to show something of the upside down nature of God's great rescue mission than for the angel Gabriel to come to a woman like Mary in a town like Nazareth? It's the beauty of the gospel. And we're told the angel said to her in verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Right, the word favor in the, in the Greek is, is the word charis, a word oftentimes translated grace in the scriptures. It means to be treated with unmerited kindness, 
meaning that, that Mary is a recipient of God's grace on the receiving end of something that she doesn't deserve. As we'll see next week, Mary too is a sinner in need of a savior. She's not exempt. She's not to be deified. She's not to be venerated in status as an object of worship. She's a recipient of God's grace as are all of we, all of us. In this case, of course, the most wondrous of graces, right? She gets to bear God's promised Messiah to be given the name Jesus. As Paul will go on to say in Philippians 2, 9, the name that is above every name from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. As Matthew tells us in his gospel account, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins that the tiny hands of the baby to be formed in Mary's womb will someday receive the nails of crucifixion that he might save his people from their sins. It's a wonder to think about. The angel goes on to say in verse 32, and he will be great, this Jesus, and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Here's where you see something of the contrast again. The angel Gabriel had declared to Zechariah that his son, John, would be great. Chapter one, verse 15, as he declares here that Jesus will be great. But these are two very different forms of greatness. The one John would be great in preparing the way of the Lord The other Jesus would be great in that he is the Lord, the son of the most high, meaning that Mary's son would not solely be Mary's son, but the very son of God. The whole fullness of deity dwelling bodily, as Paul says in Colossians 2.9, God clothed in flesh, having stepped into the neighborhood, the slums of human history. That the one John would be great in preparing Israel to meet her God in the coming of his kingdom, the other Jesus would be great in that he is God and his is the kingdom. Right, this is some of that Hebrew stuff that you see. Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater Joshua, the greater priest and sacrifice and temple. That's what Luke's doing here. Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David, the angel says, a, a king in David's lineage through whom God will establish his eternal throne providing the stability of a forever king in a forever kingdom of perfect justice and equity. Verse 34, we get Mary's response. And she said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? We might at first glance think to ourselves, this seems to be a similar response to, to Zechariah's. And yet the angel Gabriel doesn't leave Mary mute for nine months. What's going on here? Apparently there's a difference between how can this be and how will this be? And it's the difference between faith and unbelief, right? We know going back to verse 20 that Zechariah didn't believe the angel's words. And we also know, skipping ahead to verse 45, that Mary does believe that the promise will be fulfilled, She just simply can't wrap her mind around how it'll all come to pass. In in the words of one commentator, she wondered about the mechanics of God's grace, but knew he could do as promised. So that the angel responded to her in verse 35 and answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. It's crazy to think in one verse that, that you have two of the most mysterious and wondrous doctrines in all of scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the virgin birth. As the angel Gabriel declares the work of God the Father and God the Spirit in preparing a body for God the Son. You have all of the persons of the Godhead present here. This child to be housed in the womb of a virgin girl until the day of his birth in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That Jesus, and we believe this as a church, this is written into our doctrinal statement. Jesus is the incarnate word of God who without ceasing to be God became flesh and dwelt among man. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, both fully God and fully man, the God-man. As the, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, says it, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person, Jesus Christ, is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Mysterious? Yes. Mythological? No. Luke means to record a historical account, even when that historical account defies all human reason. And make no mistake about it, much of Luke's gospel account will surely put us face to face with the supernatural. This is not the first time we're gonna see it. Donald McLeod, in his writing entitled The Person of Christ, he says, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas, and none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows in this great gospel account and story belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. Just stop there. That, that God means with great intentionality, to highlight his supernatural wonder-working power in this great story of redemption. He means with great intentionality to defy our reason, to highlight our need for a redemption that we could never bring about ourselves, requiring a miracle that puts us on our heels. As T.F. Torrance says in his incredible work, Incarnation, he says, the birth of Jesus was a real advent, an act of God's grace, a coming into man. And as such, it carries with it a disqualification of human capabilities and powers as rendering possible an approach of man to God. The virgin birth, he says, is the doctrine that the movement of the Son of God to become man is one directional. From God to man, it cannot be reversed 
It's why I believe that the curtain in the temple when Jesus died was torn from top to bottom to communicate that God was dealing with our sin, that we could never get to him from bottom to top, that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's an unwavering declaration that we could never get to him, that we could never do enough to bridge the gap between our sinfulness and his holiness, that Christmas is the celebration that we don't have to bridge that gap. Christmas is the, the glorious declaration that we can stop trying to impress God that we're free from the empty chase of trying to merit his love, that he's done what man could never do. And, and speaking of things that, that only God can do, it goes on to say in verse 36, and behold, the angel says, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Right, we ask the question, how can this mystery of the virgin birth and incarnation be? Answer, God can do whatever he wants to do because he's God. That our ability to fully grasp it or make sense of it, it doesn't diminish in the least God's power to accomplish it. That to deny the virgin birth is to deny God's preserving work of the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. To deny the virgin birth is to declare the divinely possible impossible. That God performed arguably the greatest miracle in all of human history without so much as breaking a sweat. That's your God, Christian. I would ask this morning, and I have to ask myself this often, do you believe that nothing is too difficult for God? And I'm not just talking theologically. We can all give a hearty theological yes and amen to that. I'm talking functionally. Do you believe that nothing is too difficult for God in the low altitude grit of your, your own circumstances, in the midst of your own present needs, in the midst of your own present sufferings, in the midst of your own present brokenness and heartache? Philip Ryken says in his commentary on this morning's passage, he says, he is the God of the virgin birth. There is no sin he cannot forgive, no relationship he cannot reconcile, no problem he cannot resolve, no need he cannot meet, no ministry he cannot bless, no grief he cannot comfort, no life he cannot reclaim, no sinner he cannot save. The God of the virgin birth, he says, is the God who makes all things possible. Luke's putting us face to face with the question, do I believe this? Again, he composed this writing that we might know, that we might have certainty, that we might be sure of God's promises and trustworthiness and word, that we might be sure that with God, nothing is impossible as evidenced in the, the wonder and mystery of the incarnation, God having come to rescue us from our sins. Zechariah responded, as we know, in, in disbelief, but not Mary. If you look at verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel, we're told, departed from her. Right, let me just stop here for a second. Lest we, lest we think that Mary is superhuman, 
with a faith that could, we could never hope to have for ourselves, can we just acknowledge that her humble submission to the Lord's will, that humble submission is owing to God's grace too? That, that the promise to Mary is far more mind-boggling than the promise to Zechariah. A child to come not from a barren womb, but a virgin womb. And not a, not a prophetic messenger like John, but a divine savior, the son of God who, who will reign as king forever. Right? To believe such a thing requires the faith that only God can give. Grace. It's all of grace. That unlike Zechariah's profession of, of unbelief, Mary makes a profession of faith, declaring herself the servant of the Lord. That word servant meaning handmaid, a handmaid postured in, in humble obedient submission before her master. That Mary submits to God's word, God's promise, and God's plan, though she has no idea of what it might cost her. It's a lot like Isaiah, right? If you're familiar with Isaiah chapter six, his encounter with the Lord on the throne, where he responds with a declarative hearty, here I am, Lord, send me completely clueless to the task that awaited him, a calling to preach for years to a people who would reject his message. But the reality is that it just doesn't matter when you've had a true collision with the living God and his overwhelming glory and grace in your life. Right, Mary, we know, faces the possibility of public shame for her pregnancy, the exact opposite of Elizabeth, whose shame was taken away. She faces the possible loss of her betrothed, Joseph. How will he respond? The loss of her reputation, not to mention the, the many sufferings she couldn't possibly predict from the, the family escape to Egypt in the midst of Herod's ordered slaughtering of innocent children around the time of Jesus's birth to the beholding of her dying son as she looked up to the cross and everything in between. Right, in this moment, she, she has no idea of what it'll cost her but she knows without question that God is worthy, that he's worthy of her humble submission, that she believes the Lord's plan for her life to be better than her plan for her life. Presents us with the question, are we willing to submit our lives to the Lord who at great cost to himself has purchased our redemption? To trust that, that his plan for our lives is better than our plan to posture ourselves before him, the cry of our heart like Mary's, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, God. Perhaps that's what the Lord in, in his kindness and grace is calling you to declare this morning in light of the overwhelming grace he's shown you in Jesus Christ to cry out, I'm your servant, Lord. You're my master, the God with whom all things are possible, including the rescuing of lost sinners and the sending of your son. I surrender to your will. I submit to your word. Whatever you want for my life, that's what I want for my life too, regardless of what it might cost me. You're worth it, Lord. You're worthy. In other words, it's not just the Savior having come that we celebrate at Christmas time, but it's the King. He's both. And this morning's passage reminds us that our response is, is not just to declare him a worthy rescuer who's come to 
redeem us from our sins, but also to bow at his feet in humble submission and to declare him to be the king that he is over our lives, ruling and reigning. We get an opportunity in these moments to come to bow before the king, to celebrate that both and, to to remember the wonder of the Christmas story in that a savior has come. Yes and amen to that, but so has a king in the lineage of David. And we get to worship him now together. We get to do that through our song. We'll sing two more songs, I believe, before we exit this space this morning. And I just invite you to sing loudly as a responsive, declarative, you're a worthy king, Jesus. We'll also have an opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. If you missed it on the way in, there are communion cups on the back table uh, by the exit door. You're welcome to go grab one of those during these last two songs. Uh, we don't approach the Lord's Supper with, with a herd mentality, so to speak. That's, that's for you on your own time during these last couple of songs to take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and to dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Just invite you as you prepare to do so this morning to, to sit with the, the wonder of the baby resting in the womb of Mary, knowing that those tiny hands being formed would someday receive the nails of crucifixion that we might be redeemed as lost sinners.